Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Asian Voices Radio Podcast, where you will find real Asian American conversations about all those topics you were just too afraid to ask about with your Asian parents. I'm your host, Sasha Fu. On today's show, we'll be discussing Asian Americans in the entertainment industry. And our special guest today is Laura Allen. Laura Allen is an actress who is seen regularly on the daytime drama, The Young and the Restless. This California native who was raised in Pasadena is a former Miss LA Chinatown and competed for the title of Miss Chinese International. Her latest project is a holiday themed LGBTQ plus rom-com called Christmas at the Ranch. Laura plays Haley, a high powered executive who returns to her family's Tennessee ranch just before Christmas and finds some unexpected romance with Kate, the ranch hand. Christmas at the Ranch is streaming on telefilms.com. So hello and welcome, Laura Allen. Thanks for joining us today, Laura. Thanks for having me, Sasha. It's delightful to talk to you. Let's start out by um, talking a little bit about your family and your heritage. According to your online biography, you are described as multi-ethnic. Tell, tell us what that's about. Well, growing up, I always considered myself a mutt, a juxtaposition of sorts. My mother is Chinese, born in China. She immigrated here when she was a child. And my father is half British and half Hungarian. His parents met in England during World War II. My grandfather was in the U.S. Air Force. And actually, my mom's father, uh, my gong gong, that's what I call him, he actually fought for the U.S. in the Korean War. So I have, I'm very proud of, of my sets of grandparents and my parents as well. But I, I consider myself a mutt, <laughs> multi-ethnic mutt, <laughs> proud Well, it's mutt. interesting that you, that you are a hybrid of these two different backgrounds. How did your parents meet? <laughs> they actually met through my grandpas. So my, my American grandfather was a physician and my mother actually reached out to him because my gong gong needed some medical care. And just through the physician-patient relationship, they became very close. My grandparents used to hang out. They used to go to dinner in Chinatown. And so they ended up one day setting up my mom and my dad. <laughs> what a great story. Would you say that both of these cultures had an influence on you while you were growing up? I know you grew up in Pasadena, and that is, as far as I know, a predominantly white community. How did that affect your sense of self, being mixed race in a predominantly white community and having the influences of um, grandparents and parents who represented two different cultures? Mm -hmm. That's a good question. I as you said, Pasadena is primarily Caucasian, so I was I was raised in a predominantly white uh, community. However, my mother's side of the family is very traditional Chinese, so I grew up very close to my Chinese family. That tends to be the you know that's the bigger side of my family. My Caucasian side doesn't have as many people in it, so I grew up as far as family is concerned, surrounded by. My Chinese family, my Gungungung Papa, my grandparents are very traditional. And so I would say when it came to family life, I was raised with just an immersion of Chinese culture. And when it came to, for example, schooling and other sort of extracurriculars, 
primarily white. Although I did grow up, I started playing basketball at the age of five and I was on an all Asian basketball team. I was the center at that time because I was the tallest one. Um, (laughs) (laughs) That did not last for very long because starting in junior high school, I had to be moved to point guard and wing because I was no longer the tallest one. But I would say um, I grew up with a pretty good blend. And that's something that I've taken with me throughout my life. Um, And I, you know, after I graduated from college, took it upon myself to become even more immersed in my Chinese heritage and my Asian culture, just because I, I sort of craved that since, like you said, I was raised in an area that is primarily um, Caucasian community. In high school, though, did you feel different from your peers because of your mixed race heritage? You know, that's interesting. I, I would say I didn't, it's like one of those things where you don't really know, um, if that's all you know, that's all you know. And so I, all I've ever known is being mixed. All I've ever known is having that hybrid, as you mentioned, in my life. So I I wasn't made to feel other. I just have always, my outlook on the world is completely colored by how I grew up with this blend. And so I didn't feel like I was ostracized in any way, but I grew up very proud of who I am and all the different facets of what makes my identity. And I would say, ultimately, you know, since I was young, I considered myself to be more of a bridge between communities. I, because I'm mixed, I've always taken that responsibility very seriously. And I consider myself to be, you know, with the Caucasian community, a bridge to the Asian community and with my Asian community, a bridge to, you know, a more European mixed community. So I I embrace that concept of otherness just because as a mixed person, you know, there's actually a Spanish phrase called life on the hyphen. That's the translation mm-hmm. for how mixed people, we live on this hyphen. So, you know, it's not just about being, quote unquote, other-sized by one community or the other. We don't necessarily fit in completely to any community that we're actually a part of. For example, I'm not you know, to some people, maybe not Asian enough to fit into the Asian community and for white people, you know, perhaps not white enough to fit completely into the white community. So I've always had to make my own path and forge my own identity as a blend between everything that makes me me. And I've, I'm very proud of having that opportunity, even though in the beginning it was it was a challenge, I think, mm-hmm. just kind of navigating this space and, and wondering why I didn't look like some of the other members of my family. <laughs> so, um, but it's something as, as I grew up, I became very fond of and very proud of. So essentially you owned it rather than saying I'm struggling with it. Uh, you said, I own this. I'm proud of both of these cultural backgrounds and I want to embrace both of them. Absolutely. And I'm really lucky to have a family who also encourages just, they just love us for us. I like to ask this about the actors I interview on this podcast. In some Asian families, the idea of being an actor or an entertainer is just horrific. I mean, you might as well tell them that you're going to join the circus. Uh, What kind of influences did you get from your family as far as what they wanted to see you choose as a career? That's interesting because, you know, I'm 
I'm in a Chinese family and then the other side is Jewish. So I was feeling that pressure to excel uh, from both angles. <laughs> but you know, my Gong Gong, my Chinese grandfather, he was very artistic. He was a cartographer in the Korean War for the United States. And he also owned at one point in time in Chinatown, a picture frame shop. So he was very artistic. And that that sort of artistic talent also passed through my mother. Um, she is a fantastic oil painter. However, she had to go into the corporate world. She was the oldest of five. Um, and so I, I think being an artist, and I feel very lucky because they sacrificed, right, and did the quote-unquote responsible thing so that I could pursue my dream. Um, and I feel very lucky, though they, they were very, I think, scared. Uh, when I decided to be an actor, I had actually started my career on the production end and behind the camera because that was, quote unquote, the more responsible thing to do. It was more predictable, steady, but I wasn't fulfilled doing any of those jobs. And when I finally made the transition to acting, my family tried to support me in the best way they could, but didn't really know how to. And it wasn't until I actually started working on The Young and the Restless while I was going to law school, because you talked about that that sort of pressure. Um, oh, yeah, for sure. I, I said, I have to go to law school. <laughs> um, the word backup plan comes up a lot, just, you know, uh. Uh, stability, all of those things. But I ended up going to law school while working on The Young and the Restless, and it was that balance that my family just was able to grasp onto and comprehend, oh, she really loves doing this and we're not afraid for her future. <laughs> so it was that because combination. Because she has a plan B. Because, <laughs> well, yeah, and and not only even a plan B, just a concurrent plan. I'm, I'm still doing them both because, like I said, I always considered myself a bit of a juxtaposition. Um, and to me, that's that's sort of the blend I need. I, I am a very logical, nerdy person, but I am also a creative. and I you know, I, I needed both <laughs> in a sense. So I, yeah, I'm also a lawyer, which I guess answers the question about family and careers, but they, they're so supportive. And I'm, it's something that they might not know the right vocabulary um, to support me in acting, but it's something that we're going on this together. And I'm, I just appreciate any, any support that they have. Laura, I, and don't take this the wrong way, but you decided on a law career after you had started acting. Was it a little bit to mollify your parents so that they would calm down a little bit and be a little less anxious to kind of say, hey, mom and dad, I also have this law career? Or was it strictly for you? Oh, no. one Yeah, you hit the nail on the head. I, I would say, it. you know, I started my legal endeavors after I had started pursuing acting, but prior to booking The Young and the Restless in 2017. And they both ended up happening almost at the identical time. So it wow. was one of those things where acting was really difficult and I just needed, I do very well with structure and I needed some sort of structure. So what I ended up doing was taking an LSAT course. I didn't even think I was going to go to law school. I said, let me just take an LSAT course. I need this intellectual challenge. I'm a super nerd. And one thing led to the other. I took the LSAT, wasn't quite happy with my score. I said, oh, I'll take it again. I happened to have a wedding in New Orleans during the second, you know, my second LSAT. And I said, oh, I'll just take it because 
ah, you don't really care what I get because I'm just in competition with myself at this point. Ended up doing pretty well and saying, let's just see if I apply where I'd get in. It was just sort of the door just kept opening and opening. And then at around the same time I got into law school, I found out that I had booked The Young and the Restless. And acting is something that at that point I had just fallen completely in love with and had worked really hard at. And I said, there's absolutely no way I'm going to give up this opportunity. This is everything I've been working towards. So I was really scared. I didn't tell many people I was interested in both just because people have opinions and they have ideas of what the box they want to put you in. And I, my whole Mm -hmm. life, the theme is I don't know what box I fit in. So I'm just doing what serves me and what I know in my heart I'm capable of. And it was one of my friends on The Young and the Restless who I had had just been confiding in her, like, I'm kind of at this, I have these opportunities and I'm not sure what to do. And she, she said something that will stick with me forever. She said, who are you to close a door that opens? And I, I just, from that point on, that's pretty much how I've dealt with everything. It's not up to me to close doors for myself. I am going to go through every door that opens and we'll see what happens. So that's what I did. What a beautiful way to look at that. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. And I think a lot of people would just say, wow, props to her. She's taking on two very difficult endeavors and she's successful. And, you know, I props to you. That's I'm impressed. Thank you. Well, you know, it's funny. I'm just going to say one thing because it's, you know, it's not just me. I was actually at a creative conference for Asians a few years back. And there was a panel of writers, Asian writers on fantastic shows, primetime television, well-known shows, and a, a moderator. And every single person, including the moderator, had started their creative careers later because every single person had either considered graduate school, medical school, business school, law school, or had actually done it. And I think the more we talk about it, the more we realize this is not necessarily a unique thing within the Asian community because we do have that sort of built-in barometer for excellence and success and what it means and family responsibility and wanting to be good children because a lot of us are children of immigrants and we see how much they sacrifice for us to live this American dream and we don't want to squander that and we want to do what traditionally makes them very proud. And so it was a really interesting thing. And the more I talk about my journey, people have been reaching out to me saying, I'm doing the same thing. Do you have any advice? I'm also an actor thinking about going to law school. So there's there's more of us out there than you would think, actually. <laughs> Laura, I wanted to talk to you or at least touch on the idea that you um, got comfortable in front of the camera because of your pageant experience. You were a beauty pageant queen. In fact, you won the Miss LA Chinatown title, and you were the first mixed race woman to hold that title. What was the pageant experience like for you? That is a great question because I had never even considered doing a pageant prior to Miss Los Angeles Chinatown. As I mentioned before, I grew up playing basketball. I grew up a little bit like a tomboy. Um, But what drew me to this pageant was that it was a cultural pageant. And as I said, when I When I came back as an adult to Los Angeles, I had gone to university in Nashville. I came back and I just had this craving to to get to know more about my culture. I I mentioned that my, you know, my my family is very traditional Chinese. And aside from my family experience, I didn't really have much experience with how 
people in my generation dealt with their Asian-ness and I wasn't very Asian socially. My family was very traditional, but I just didn't, I didn't know how people my, my age um, lived amongst the Asian community. I had not been exposed to that. And so I had this craving to get to know that, to, to connect with my heritage and my gungung and my papa, my Chinese grandparents, they were also very involved with the Chinatown community in Los Angeles. So this was also an opportunity for me to do more activities with them. And so I ended up participating in this pageant, not thinking at all that I would be chosen as the representative <laughs> for the Chinese community in Los Angeles. In fact, I I completely just like blacked out when my name was called. I have no memory of them saying my name because I thought for sure there's no <laughs> there's no reason why I should be paying attention right now because I'm not getting it. And then I remember just looking around and everyone was staring at me and I said, "Oh, shoot, I wow, I think my name was just called and someone's like motioning to me to do this walk down the the um the stage." And that just propelled me I mean, without sounding cheesy, that changed my life. Like 100% changed my life. It propelled me into this journey of getting close with my heritage and just immersing myself within the Chinese community. I was, you know, because I'm mixed and I look mixed and I, as you mentioned, was the first mixed person to hold this title. I took this job very seriously. It was a year long job, essentially, or responsibility of representing the Chinese community and not only in, you know, sort of quote unquote beauty pageant things, but they really, they really did a great job of kind of respecting the fact that women have empowerment. So I had to moderate business mm -hmm. briefings with the mayor before going to work. I had to host philanthropic, you know, philanthropic endeavors. I had to be, when I went to China on behalf of the Los Angeles Chinese Chamber of Commerce, I had to basically be there to maintain good relationships between government officials and the Chinese Chamber of Commerce and business people. So it was, they really threw us into every nook and cranny of how the Chinese community is involved in the greater Los Angeles community, our relationship with the Hispanic community. I was on Univision. I was interviewed by the Jewish Journal. So I became, as I also mentioned, this bridge between the Chinese community and the communities outside of that. And um, I really, I really just embrace this responsibility to do a great job to represent my heritage because I knew that some people might look at me and say, why is she our representative? And I, mm -hmm. I took that responsibility and I said, I'm going to prove to you that I love my heritage and I love and I'm so proud of being Asian and I will do a good job. And I promise you you know, this is not something that I'm doing for my own benefit. Like I, I, despite the way I might outwardly appear, I am very in my heart, so connected to my roots. And I wanted to prove that to the community. And, and that just propelled me into this whole journey of, you know, having to go to Hong Kong to represent Los Angeles. And then, as you mentioned, eventually changing my career path, <laughs> because I realized I could be a voice. I'd never been in front of the camera. I didn't value myself in that way. When you were in Hong Kong for the international pageant, I believe it's Miss Chinese International, did the other contestants look at you and say, she looks a little different than us. She's a representative from Los Angeles. What kind of interaction did you have with the other contestants once you were on this international stage? 
They definitely thought that. And I think the, you know, in Hong Kong, it's very press focused. So the press also obviously latched onto that. But they were so open um, because I think they realized that despite the way that I appear, I actually grew up culturally a lot more Chinese than even some of them who had grown up in Asia. And mm -hmm. that was sort of an interesting uh, interesting thing to, to come to grips with because I would, I would look at them and say, oh, you're representatives of the Chinese community where you're from. Did you ever do this, this, this? And they looked at me like, what is she talking about? <laughs> so mm -hmm. I, I think I had taken for granted or just hadn't been exposed to how much traditional, you know, traditional facets of the community that I had been exposed to growing up and how traditional my family is. I was the only one in Hong Kong who didn't speak Cantonese. So I was at a slight um, disadvantage there when it came to just fully immersing myself in the experience because I did win this friendship, but it might have been because I was smiling while all these conversations were happening around me. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I, I didn't speak the language, uh, which I, I, I do think ultimately benefited me in the sense that um, the pageant coordinators and the press were very kind to me. They tend to, unlike Miss Los Angeles Chinatown, which is just really community-based and cultural-based, and like I said, they had as moderate business briefings, so they really respected our minds. The pageant in Hong Kong was what you would think of more as like a traditional pageant. So uh, the press tended to be a little bit cruel to some of the girls. Um, but I think because I didn't speak the language, they took it easy on me. <laughs> when you're having these conversations with some of the other contestants and you said, did you do this and that, could you off the top of your head, Laura, give me an example of some of the more uh, traditional Chinese customs that you said, oh, you're not familiar with this custom or that? What are some of those things that you mentioned? Uh, let's see. The first thing that comes to mind is just a traditional Chinese banquet, you know, kind of family style community banquet with some, you know, depending on the occasion, there's certain foods that represent like long life or prosperity that I had grown up thinking, oh, yeah, this is, you know, the Chinese culture is very symbolic in many ways. I had grown up thinking, oh, every Chinese person knows that these particular noodles represent long life. You know, my papa growing up, she would make very traditional dishes from her village that meant things. Mm -hmm. So every meal that we had, like Lunar New Year was a very intentional meal. Very Every single mm -hmm. dish means something. So I, I guess I assumed that other people in the Chinese culture were familiar with the symbolism. Um, and they weren't. So it was kind of an interesting, and also we were, we were from different places around the world. So it was really interesting to share the cultures that we had grown mm -hmm. up with. Can you make any of those foods that your grandmother introduced you to or would make on Lunar New Year? Oh, man. Well, first, I'm not a very good cook. <laughs> so, uh, so, but I have um, asked my papa, I say, you know, how do you make this? Because we all want to learn the traditional dishes. But the, the thing is, she's been cooking for so many years in the same kitchen that she looks at us like we are, you know, doofuses because... She's like, what do you mean? How do you cook that? You take that bowl, you fill it up to that crack, and that's how much. <laughs> you know, we're like, but how do we make it in our kitchens? <laughs> uh, so she's she's just been operating the same space, and she's it's, she's like a mad scientist. She knows exactly what to buy from the store. These, you know, I wouldn't even know the names of them. They're just different types of dehydrated mushrooms that I wouldn't even know how to cook. Uh, so <laughs> she's just a genius in the kitchen, and and that's her love language because she doesn't speak 
English. And her love language to her grandchildren has been food. That's how we've been communicating most of our lives. She basically raised all of us when we were little, despite the fact that we don't, the grandchildren don't speak um, her, her language, which is a combination of Cantonese, Toisan, and the village dialect. So food has just been the way we connect. Because I was going to say, if you knew how to make those dishes, I was going to invite myself over for Chinese New Year. <laughs> <laughs> My family is very open to having people over for the holidays. All right, I'm, I won't be cooking, I'm there. But... <laughs> I'm inviting myself over. <laughs> Come on over. <laughs> um, you, you talked about the pageant experience and um, appearances. And of course, appearances do count. Well, we know that especially matters in Hollywood. And I was wondering, as you were breaking into acting as a mixed race actor, what kinds of roles were open to you or what kinds of roles were you considered for? That's a good question. Um, you know, I think in the beginning of my career, it because I, again, I, I started acting short, you know, being a part of the Asian pageants inspired me eventually to quit my job uh, in TV marketing and go in front of the camera. So I think coming off that momentum, I was very into pushing my Asianness. But as a result, I ended up pairing and I love, you know, I'm very grateful for all the team, the team members that I've had over the years, but I did end up kind of being put into this box of, box of the Asian client. And as a consequence, I would go out for these quote unquote Asian roles and you know, who knows if it's if it's a combination of the fact that I was newer to acting back then, uh, my craft was different, or the way I looked, but I wasn't booking these fully Asian roles. And I think at a certain point, I I was a little bit worried that I I would fall through the cracks because I wasn't booking these Asian roles and I wasn't being pitched for roles outside. I was the Asian client, so I wasn't being pitched for roles outside as or I wasn't going out for those roles. But then I think as, as I've spent more time in the industry and paired with people who, who know me and my, just who I am and my career goals, I've been fortunate to be pitched for everything that matches me. And, and sometimes that overlaps with Asian roles. Sometimes that overlaps with mixed ethnicity. Sometimes it's Caucasian, but I, it's interesting. My young and the restless character originally, um, was actually Asian American. And they ended up giving her a Caucasian last name, basing her in Japan. So I ended up learning a few um, things in Japanese. I had one of my best friend's mom actually voice note me all of my lines in Japanese that I would listen to before I would go on to set. She was Asian American. And I, I'm, I feel very fortunate that I was able to grow that character because I think of myself a little bit, I've mentioned the word bridge, but kind of like a Trojan horse where I can, I can pass as, you know, white facing if, for example, it's on a project that might not be, they might not have even known they were looking for an Asian. But if I book that, lo and behold, they've cast an Asian without even knowing. So I think of myself a bit like a Trojan horse where I can come in and if I'm right for the role, I represent a whole host of communities that they didn't even know they were signing up to, to have in their project. And I'm very proud of that. Um, in your new film, Christmas at the Ranch, you play a woman who falls for another woman. Um, so this is a story about a lesbian romance. Um, do you think this is moving in the path of 
longer lasting change? I hope so. I think that with representation in a lot of areas, even Asian representation, LGBTQ plus representation, other cultural representations, I think that we are making strides for sustainable change because we're, you know, for example, my film, it's at the helm, lesbian women. And I think that is so important that people who, you know, Kristen Baker, the director, she's a lesbian, the writer, you know, we're we're featuring projects and we're making projects that were created by people who are who are proud members of their communities and i think because of that this is sustainable change at the end of the day representation isn't just who shows up on screen it it happens in every nook and cranny of the process of making a film it starts with the creatives it starts in the writers room it starts with a script and for the people who are creating the film so i i think I think we are headed towards lasting change because the people at the helm are changing. What's next for Laura Allen? What's next for Laura Allen? <laughs> Hopefully a great year. A of... presidential run. <laughs> oh gosh, no, I am not. I am not a no. politician. But still, you know, balancing law and acting, finding a way to create a platform through acting where I can do this is more what's next for me in the long run. I would love to combine both of my my passions into being something that I I can have a longer lasting impact. For example, advocacy. I think being an actor, there's a lot of responsibility with having a public platform. And I really want to use that platform for good and hopefully use my law degree to complement that. Great. What about the idea of directing? I know a lot of actors turn toward directing. It's not something that I had thought about originally just because I, I started off on the production end. So I think before directing, I would do production. I have some really good friends who are directors and their creative minds are, are I just can't even compare with that. So I, I would do production before directing. For sure. <laughs> I know I know the lanes I belong in and directing is something that I don't think is uh, within my wheelhouse right now. <laughs> I respect it. Yeah, but you have so many other wheelhouses, so maybe that's okay. <laughs> Our time has come to an end right now. So I do want to thank you, Laura, for joining us. To learn more about Laura, uh, how do we direct people who want to learn more about you? Where do we direct them? You can find me on Instagram at it's lore underscore Allen. And that's pretty much the only social media that I use. <laughs> well, that's great. Thank you so much for having me, Sasha. This was really fun. Well, I'm so pleased you could join us. Now, if you have any suggestions for future topics for Asian Voices Radio, we would love to hear from you. And also be sure to subscribe and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Until next time, I'm your host, Sasha Fu. I'd like to thank you all for listening in. Please join us next week for another exciting and thought-provoking Asian Voices radio show. Until then, hey, take care, everyone.